I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On this episode of the podcast, I've got the only black female history professor in the United Kingdom. Her name's Olivette Atelli. She's a professor of the history of slavery at Bristol University. She's a wonderful scholar and communicator, most importantly of all. She shares my great love of all things maritime. She's written a great new book, African Europeans, an untold story about some of the many Africans who've played an important part in European history. They include one of my children's ancestors, a young boy from West Africa who was taken and presented to Tsar Peter the Great and rose to become a great aristocrat in Imperial Russia. Anyway, I digress. Enjoy this podcast. If you want to go and watch our new Hastings documentary, I think it's probably one of the best documentaries history it's ever produced, so I'm very excited about that. If you use the code 1066 you can get a month for free and then three months for just one pound, euro or dollar for each of those first three months. But in the meantime, everyone, here's Olivette Atelli. Enjoy. Olivette, thank you. Great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. It's brilliant to be here. OK, so we're, we're talking about um, African Europeans and, and I think so many of us, me included, have assumed that Africans are a very recent presence in Europe. Uh, t- talk, to me about, talk to me about how far back you've been able to identify Africans playing a part and, in many cases, playing a leading part in, in European uh, politics and culture and society. Well, I went back to um, the Roman Empire and as far as, far as the Roman Empire, but actually um, there, there is evidence that you can go further back. But I chose the Roman Empire because, you know, it's often seen as the birth of European civilization in terms of intellectual, um, intellectual journey and things like that. So I wanted to, you know, to play a bit with this idea of the Roman Empire being uniquely and exclusively European. So yeah, that that's where I started, third century roughly. It's interesting, isn't it, with the, the Roman Empire? When you go back and read Roman writers, they talk about Africa as like the Holy Grail. I mean, it was Rome got great when it conquered North Africa in many ways, right? So it, it's a, it's such a fascinating. But do, when they think about Africa, are they thinking about that very narrow strip of North Africa. Are they thinking about Africans as we would understand them today, North and, and Sub-Saharan. Like, what what does Africa mean to the Romans? Well, it means um, a, a, a kind of civilizations that are, are are to be conquered, 
you know, it was about about conquest, but not conquered in terms of necessarily subjugated, but conquered in terms of occupying territories and bringing in whatever is in these ter- territories to uh, to Rome, really within the Roman Empire. And it's also about um, allowing certain cultures to exist within the Roman Empire. So, in other words, it's not a, a term of um, it's not a question of assimilation. It's more to do with leaving them as they are, but they must know that they're part of the Roman Empire and therefore they have to abide to certain rules. But they exist by themselves um, as entities, if you would. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah it, it, for me, it's much more... The, the conceptually, it's much more open that we would understand conquest in 21st century, if you would. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about um, Africa, Roman Africans like Septimius Severus the Emperor... Do, do, do they? When, I mean, obviously, there's, I guess there's all sorts of different types of Roman Africans. But are some of them, if you like, white European settlers who grow up in Africa? Others are people of colour playing a part in in Roman politics and Roman army in particular. Yes, um, you have intellectuals. Fronto, for example, uh, 100 uh, BCE. You have, of course, Septimius uh, Severus. Uh, you have many others um, who became. Uh, um, who became Roman Emperor, well, Septimius became Roman Emperor, but you have a whole cohort of people who were actually a highly esteemed civil servant. Um, they were part of the Senate, and they were deported, well, um, they were uh, sent to Asia, they were sent across the, you know, the confines of the, of the empire. So they were representing the empire while still being themselves. So it's it's not as um, it's it's very complex and it's very it's it's incredibly varied, and that's what uh, interested me in that, in the fact that you have a, a variety of people who are occupying a variety of jobs. Really, did the Romans see colour? Do you think like the way that we see skin pigmentation today? I think they saw colour, but colour was not based on um, uh, necessarily on the hierarchy as we understand it today. They saw power. So within that power dynamic, you could have different people of different colours. You, you know, it was up to you and to your connections to distinguish yourself uh, through your intellect, your education, and make way to, uh, to, to, to reach the highest um, echelons. So it really is the conception of colour has... has almost nothing to do with what we understand as we understand it today. It's really a colonial kind of 18th century, 17th, 18th century, that you have a transformation of what um, uh, that, that hierarchy, if you would, has been put in place in a way that, um, well, we still see today, really. Um, talk to me about other Africans. Is it, is it uh, Saint-Maurice who, who, who managed to navigate uh, the, the Roman world effectively as Africans? Yes, I really like him because he is between uh, the story of the man, a Roman soldier uh, born in the Thebes region, which is Egypt, nowadays Egypt. And the way he died, um, uh, killed by, because he he refused to actually uh, abide by um, uh, Roman rules, which were to, to pray to the god Jupiter before battle. But what is interesting, so he was a martyr. So what is interesting is that his story was transformed and reached the um, across the Rhine region and reached uh, what is nowadays Germany. So you have a statue of uh, Saint Maurice in Magdeburg Cathedral, representing basically Europe when he was actually born in North Africa or well, in, in in Egypt. So the transformation of the myth, and at the same time the idea that the confines of the Roman Empire were not. Um, 
were not what we thought they were. In other words, the story has been transformed across centuries and become something that is part of European culture. And I really like that, the fact that, because there's, no, there's such a fluidity in terms of times, geography, and, and storytelling in, uh, around the, the, the story of uh, St. Morris. And we're, not, and we're not just talking about North Africa. I'm always really interested in those Roman sites deep down into what we'd call Sudan today, Nubia. I mean, there was, there was you know, considerable diplomatic military act, trading activity going on with what we'd now say is Saharan or sub-Saharan Africa, wouldn't we? Yes, yes, of course. It, again, it was about trade and power. So you have the Kandak or Kandake, uh, who were the, the queens of Meroe, who were resisting uh, Roman invasion and, and f- strongly resistant Roman invasion, but they have to they had to capitulate in the end. But what is interesting is is that again you have the gender question coming into the equation because these women were supposedly the the mothers of the king, but they were the ones who actually who were holding the power and for a very very long time, and uh, that that's another aspect. Of that story that is both power gendered and at the same time related to military and trade. Yes, they're fascinating characters. Do we think Rome would look of, of diverse and cosmopolitan potentially as, as, a, as a modern city today in terms of the its ethnic makeup? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm convinced about this um, simply because of, again, the size, the very size of the Roman Empire. Uh, was huge and the fact that you know they they brought these people several times for several events and some of them were traveling across the the empire so there was this circulation and there was no barrier uh, in terms of circulation these people were as long as they they wanted to make a living if they had a a kind of status wherever they were they came from they were allowed to circulate within the the empire so really from north to to rome to well to britannia if you would um, so I, I also like this idea of migration. I love the I love the fact that some of the first Africans to arrive in Britain were almost certainly uh, the African legions uh, of the Roman army, and so Africans first arrive in Britain as the imperial overlords. <laughs> yes, they did, and tried to take it, tried to take over. It didn't quite go according to plan, but well, with Septimius, uh, Septimius dying, but. Let's move. Let's move on a bit. Like, talk to me about in in the early modern period. The, well, the, the medieval. Uh, what, what? How does how does Europe's relate? How do, how do Africans do Africans continue um, to to cross into Europe once we're not part of one large political unit anymore? Once the Mediterranean is more politically divided, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult. You still have, um, let's say, until the uh, the uh, Reconquista, fourteen ninety two. Ish, you still have crossings, but you know the kingdoms of Spain and Portugal are making it difficult because they have gotten rid of um, of the Muslims, and they want these entities to remain what they see as Christian first and foremost. So crossing becomes difficult, and then with that, with a European kind of uh, conquest and um, travelings across the globe, looking for India, as 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 you know, um, and coming into into contact with populations of sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa, the idea that uh, these populations can be transported and used as, as, um, as labor uh, becomes more uh, valid, business-wise, valid in terms of business, if you would. 
And so you see slowly the transformation of the, and, and the gaze that Europeans have about these, these populations. And you, see, you also see slowly uh, um, an erasure, if you would, of that history of uh, transmigration and, and kind of open, um, open frontiers. Uh, that is slowly being um, shut down, erased from history. And then you see colonial where completely, you know, black bodies are policed and um, they can't circulate wherever they, they, as they see fit. What, what do you see as the key turning point where, where that, that the black body begins to be seen like that? I would probably say for Spain and Portugal, um, it's, it starts in the 15th century and then culminated in the uh, 17th century. For the British and the French, it's mostly the 18th century. Um, yeah, really, those, those four, four centuries, you have this um, hardening of laws about travellings and, and, and black people travelling across, um, across, across European kingdoms, really. So that's as, as the big picture. What about individual? Uh, what do we know about individual Africans in Europe in this, this period? Are there, any, are there any stories that you've been able to recover? Yes, many stories, actually, uh, that some, some of them, we know them. Well, we know, some people know them. Others are uh, small groups. But you have to remember that in terms of archives left, very few were left. Um, so the ones that we know in the 17th, let's say 16th, 17th and 18th century are mostly those who are deemed exceptional. And therefore, you, you have, for example, Juan Latino in, um, in Spain, you have, uh, of course, you have uh, the, the, the Duke of Florence, Alexandre de Medici. Um, you also have um, Jacobus Capitaine in uh, the Dutch Republic, the, ne the Netherlands, if you would, in the 18th century. And of course, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges uh, in France. And these are stories I chose to talk about because uh, I wanted to look, I wanted us to have a, a different outlook of what 18th century is about. We often talk about exclusively, almost exclusively, about um, slavery and the slave trade. But I wanted to show people who were actually evolving in circles that um, uh, many, many people didn't know about. They were highly educated, privileged in many, in many um, aspects. But at the same time, they were also facing a kind of discrimination and exclusion. Uh, but they were still privileged, really. This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Yeah, tell me about the first Duke of Florence. I really enjoyed reading about him, learning about him in your book. Uh, he's somebody who's... I, I'm trying to figure out if he's sympathetic or not. 
he seems to have been somebody who was um well he he in the me too era he wouldn't he wouldn't be very much liked um but at the same time he was he was surfing on the, on his privileges because he he was protected by the pope clement he was um the duke of florence he had privileges and at the same time he he kind of um used that to um to harass women really uh, we don't really know if he was that bad of a of a of a leader what we do know is that there were a lot of prejudice and and the way his image has changed across time has just uh, shifted the perception and and we turn more about to towards the question of race whereas when he was in power it wasn't really the point it wasn't really the question he was just the duke of florence powerful and we just because today he is he would have been described as mixed heritage mixed race Yes, he was indeed. Even that story has been uh, controversial, and um, and you know many people argue that he wasn't. They tried to create another uh, heritage for him, but we do know that he was through paintings, through um, testimonies. We know that he was dual of dual heritage, uh, but that is not often um, well. That information is not uh, often known, really. Is that because when it became contra when it is that because it became more politicized later later biographers would would try and airbrush that bit out but at the time it wasn't considered remarkable to be of of mixed race Absolutely it's always it, it's always interesting it's a bit like Olsen it's always interesting because it's only after his death that you have all these uh, transformation about the narrative of his uh, his his heritage and uh, and the question of race that comes and as as time goes or as time went by you have the question of race that becomes really crucial in european debates and this idea of intellect and this idea of that you can't possibly be a duke of florence if um if there wasn't something wrong with you you know dual heritage becomes the key he was a bad leader because he was of dual heritage at least that's what has been argued by by many uh just a few years after he 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 died um my wife is descended from a very famous uh um ethiopian that was taken to russia by peter the great uh it took oh, the name took the name hannibal way. yeah and so we're very proud really? yeah and she's also descended therefore from pushkin because he was pushkin's grandfather or great grandfather i think wasn't he great grandfather yes. Um, yes he's he appears in your book uh and he's a remarkable figure actually just yeah just talk briefly about him well, it's, um, he was, um, what we know about him is that he was kidnapped and, uh, from a region in, in, in Cameroon. And as you know, I was born in Cameroon, so it was, it was deeply personal, that bit. And, uh, he was, um, given to, uh, Alexander the Great and he became his, his father, his, um, godfather. And he had the privilege, he was educated, sent to Paris and received all the honors, uh, military leader and recognized as an outstanding uh, as an outstanding politician and, and leader and his great grandson of course uh, pushkin uh, wrote um Honigin. and um it's it's beautiful because i was studying in school and i always heard these rumors when i was uh, in cameroon that story is quite known but growing it growing up in paris it wasn't and i always felt I found it extraordinary that, you know, we talk about all these people, but we never actually make the connection with uh, African Europeans and Africa in particular. It's as if there was a disconnect between what we know uh, uh, in, in part of Cameroon and what is taught. 
However, the story is well known in uh, in Russia. So yeah, it was interesting that the French kind of erased that part. Yeah, I, I was Voltaire called him the black star of the the dark star of the Enlightenment, which I I love. So so tell me, I mean, yeah. you you mentioned um, there you talk about the present and you talk about is that why you're writing this history? I mean, are you writing this? with one eye, as of course all historians are, but are you very consciously writing this book with one eye set on the present? Oh yes, definitely. It was my way of trying to make sense as both a historian and as a person of African descent with many um, family connections as in heritages in Europe, make sense of what I I have always seen as a completely fluid identity. The fact that... um, I see myself as African-European, so it was important for me historically to show that this is not unique and it's been going on for what? I go back 2,000 years, roughly. So it's been going on for a while. So why resist what is uh, part of our history, our common history, really? Yeah, it's very personal. Why is it important if you are a, um, a black Briton? Why, why is this history important? It's important because it tells you that that your story is not just about slavery and enslavement. It's a story of migration that started long before you and that is not just about you as an African descent because European migrated too. I talk about the Mamluks, for example, example, who were Eastern European, Muslims, uh, Africans. So, you know, there's more to us, there's more to history, um, to Black Britain, than uh, that than nowadays it's a long history it's a vibrant powerful history and we should really teach teach that history so that people don't feel that they're just uh, insignificant in the face of kind of world history so yeah it's 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 important um, for them to know that do you think that is the danger Insig- that's such an interesting word insignificance i mean do you think that if you're if people are stripped of a history or told that the history is one particular thing, one particular story. Do you think that that it just that can that can shrink somebody? Oh yes, definitely. Um, I I know that be, well from from not my personal experience, but I've been working with uh, minority ethnic communities for the last twenty years, and I have seen what not knowing one's history or, or as, at um, a larger scale does to people. The, the lack of self-worth, self-esteem, the lack of um, role model and, and the thinking that, you know, um, they can't do better. And I'm saying this because we always look at racism as having an impact on uh, certain communities, for example, the black, black, black people. But there's also within the black community, um, certainly for those who don't know the history, who, who actually think their history is just that. There is the lack of self-confidence that is born when you're very young, when you don't have those anchors where your history is celebrated. Then um, I was a primary and secondary teacher, so I saw that in, in, in kids when I was teaching. You know, when you talk about slavery, they just shrink and um, it becomes something really painful, visibly painful. So I wanted them to see that as just a step in the history of humanity. Slavery was just just in between bracket, is just one part of uh, human history, um, the transatlantic slave trade at least. So yeah, there's more to us than this, as, as in us all. 
That well, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. I should check in because every time I see you and I bond about the sea, which is uh, is something that unites us all. But in particular, you and I, I always love that way that I thought I was un- I thought I was unusual. I always tell my kids whenever I'm by the sea, no matter where I am in the world, it means I can get to you because you're I know you're by the sea and it's all joined up. Yeah. And then you told me you did that as well. Yes, it's something that I've had with my grandmother, who was both uh, born near the equator. Um, so she had two two double. Um, so so you have the rainforest and the rainforest that goes up to the sea, and she was by the sea and and from the rainforest. So I'm really connected with well with the forest with the rainforest, of course. But the sea is something that is, I can't, I don't know how to. I, I never find word. It's just magical, and I need it for my sanity. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and I've seen you during lockdown. I've seen you take lots of trips out, socially distanced. I've been following on social media as you've headed to the sea and I've been doing the same. So thank you very much. And I'm, I'm glad you've um, I'm glad the book is out. Uh, what's it called? African Europeans and Untold History. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to see you and to talk with you. Thank you very much. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs. This part of the history of our country, all work on and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.